Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Before we get started, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It can include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. The emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter, and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fringe Legal. I'm so excited today to have Floor on the episode. Floor is driven to help innovators succeed. And because of this need, she founded Organization for Innovation. She developed the T4 online training for innovators that also serves as a innovation management platform. So organizations with limited innovation infrastructure can easily manage and oversee their innovation activities. She has a PhD in management from Erasmus University in the Netherlands and 20 plus years of research and practical experience with innovating in professional services. She has assisted hundreds of innovators with creating thousands of awesome solutions, leading to millions of dollars in new revenue. All fantastic achievements, and we will dig into the wealth of the knowledge that is in her brain today. So, Floor, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I came across uh, your work uh, as part of the a talk you did at the Skills Workshop uh, presentation in January 2021. And that was all around innovation management in law firms. As a setup to this conversation, because that certainly you know, tickled my interest, would you mind just giving a synopsis around that work, that report? And I'll certainly link to that for everyone listening slash watching this so they can read it in full because it is worth reading. Absolutely. Let me start to say our focus is on firms that innovate and that, that aren't the Googles of this world, that have billions to spend. So that's like a starting point and the type of teams that we work with. And we have a platform for that and we have earned then a research grant to see if we could add predictive analytics to our online training platform. We started that that research out to see if we could basically vet teams better. It's like a Fitbit for innovation teams. And if we know better what teams do, can we then also uh, provide better support? And we were so ignorant to think that we could even vet teams for law firms. We practiced what we preached, so went out to do customer discovery and asked, so would that be of benefit, such predictive analytics? The resounding answer that we got was no. We know which teams we want to support. So, okay, (laughs) we have a research grant and a problem that no one wants us to solve. Well, it... (laughs) It was a little more nuanced, but in those conversations, we also learned some uh, things that I could not write. On the one hand, there was this, this where the, if you ask people for success, like, like they were all saying, oh, you're super successful. And also like on Ilta on, we did a little poll and law firms indicated they were like, had like success rates of 80% of the, if not higher. That's 
very uncommon. So that would mean that in the law profession, they knew something that no one else knew because like a venture capitalist, they have like success rates of one to 10. And even like the Procter and Gamble's or the Unilevers of this world, they need eight ideas for one success. <clears throat> so that was one thing. At the same time, if you talk with senior leadership, they were complaining and were very skeptic about all these new technologies because they saw so many failures. So that was already like a little bit of an indication, like something is not aligned here. And last but not least, I was talking to many people and then I got like an email two months, three months later. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, I left the firm or I quit. And so I saw a huge turnover in innovation managers. So it was like, something is not, does not rhyme here. And so we're like, okay, let's use then our customer discovery and take a step back and look into how is innovation actually managed in law firms. So that's when we started anew and talked with about 35, 36 people and did an in-depth analysis of 22 law firms to really learn how do they go about managing innovative ideas. So that's that's was like the a long story <laughs> to what oh, and, to this report. Yeah, and that's really helpful context. Having that success rate of 80, 90% for innovation efforts is remarkable if it was true. And really, as you as you were talking, it's obviously there's a disconnect between those that are maybe doing the project, plus maybe those that are funding the project or are, the projects are being reported to. And it's a measurement problem, as we, I'm sure, we will get into in a little bit of time. What I really liked from the report was the framing of innovation as a process in that, yes, of course, every firm, every business, maybe every vertical will approach in a slightly different way, but it is not this black box that you can't put certain project type milestones in place for. Absolutely. It is something that's repeatable. Yeah. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit more and what you found, especially as you spoke to these, these 35, 36 people, what were some of the things that started triggering in your mind around the process approach to this? I've, I've always seen innovation as a process, to be honest. And there's also a great Harvard Business Review article that also explains it. it's, it's not only a process, it's even like a value chain which starts with idea generation, then development, and then implementation, and then scaling. And you need to be good at all these steps in order to create results. Because if you're just extraordinary in creating ideas, so for instance, if you have a, as a firm, like you're super duper in doing hackathons, you get hundreds of ideas. But if you don't know how to develop them and implement them, what is it worth to create uh, all these ideas? In that sense, innovation is really this flow. And then what we have seen over the years, that even if you can implement it, but only can do it once, that's already fantastic. That's a success. But it's often not cost effective because then you put a lot of time and effort in de-risking something, proving it has value, and then you leave it there. So you leave a lot of money at the table. So that's why scaling is so important. And that makes it it's a whole process from idea generation, development, implementation to scaling. And you need to be able to do all of these to get results and especially financial results and a return of investment from your innovation efforts. So in that sense, it's really a process. Of course, there's also like a mindset, which then alludes to like the innovation culture. But as I sometimes joke, like I can't change culture. <laughs> I can change a firm's value, but I can help change like the 
the processes, I can change the metrics. And with that, you show success. And with that, you can change attitudes and that changes culture. So that's like how I look at it and why I think the, having a process that works is so important. And is it fair to say based on that, and we'll definitely touch on the culture point in a second, but from a innovation process point of view, I think from what you're saying, A, yes, you have to do all of those things. And I'll link to the HBR article. It's a really good read. I think it's a little old now, but yeah. it's just as valid as it was then. The, the important thing to me is you don't have to have one person doing all of those things. There should be an effort for the entire team. In some instances, you only have one person. So you unfortunately have to do a bit of everything. But in teams greater than one, it should be a an effort that's carried across everyone working towards a common goal, but having different activities they're all in charge of. But what you were saying that triggered a thought was, uh, to me at least, it sounds like there's two different things that you're trying to accomplish. The first is, can we get success with this innovation project at all? That's, can we get a win ever? And then Mm -hmm. the second thing is scaling, right? Once we've proven that this is doable, and the doable to me is, how can we approach these projects to manage our cost and maximize our returns? And then the second thing is, how can we scale that so it's repeatable yeah. in the future? If I may insert, I, w- yeah. I would urge you to first look, is there a need? No, because absolutely. often we start from what we can do, but that's actually irrelevant. But it's not about what we can do. It's what our clients need us to do or ask us to do. So <laughs> I know, absolutely. Great reminder. This is why I love having experts, because even I just jumped to let's get things going. Let's do things. But yeah, first you do have to, you do have to establish that there is indeed a need for it. So yeah, really great point. Is there a difference between focusing on internal innovation projects? And by the way, we say innovation projects. And I know in the research that you did, there is a huge variance in some firms doing you know, single digit projects in a year and some firms doing hundreds of them in a year. Please just define what an innovation project is, what the scope of that might be. And it doesn't have to be one thing, but from your perspective, what is an innovation project? What does it mean? I have a pretty broad definition. As long as you like, you embark on an idea and something that the firm has not done before for our methodology. And uh, we typically look at projects that impact clients. So this can be a new process, can be a technology, can be a new practice group, uh, can be improvement. However, it needs to something that has a direct or an indirect benefit to clients. So in, in that sense, there has to be somewhat a new element, but the firm does not need to be the first one on the globe to embark on that mission for it to call, be called innovation. It doesn't have to be brand new for the market. It just has to be new for that firm or that practice or that team. Yeah, yeah. And there you get on a different pet peeve of mine, and I don't know if it's relevant for this discussion, but <laughs> since I have guided so many uh, teams, uh, we do know like for radically new uh, projects, um, say like new to the globe, or something that's more incremental, something that the firm has already somewhat done, you need uh, different management styles. Mm-hmm. Or uh, because incremental projects, they can get support and find support within the firm. But if you have like something that's really, truly new, typically as a team, you need to find like uh, support outside of the firm to back you up uh, inside the firm. <clears throat> that being said, so it's important to know how novel your project actually is. But <laughs> 
I've guided so many teams. If I ask innovators or teams, they all say like on a scale to one to 10, all fall on the scale of eight to 10, which again, can't be true. <laughs> so I do think that most teams have great difficulty in estimating how novel their approach actually is. And they all want to present themselves as more novel than they may actually be. Yeah. And I think it's, it is worth keeping in mind the goal for these projects and really why you're trying to introduce the management philosophy to these innovation projects. And I'm just going to frankly quote something that you wrote in your report because you put it so well rather than me trying to make it up. Uh, and I'm quoting now, it's from the report and it's innovation management helps to optimize the innovation process, identify bottlenecks and increase the productivity of innovation investment and resources because that should apply to frankly everything, right? Whether your project is tiny, whether it's an incremental innovation type project or a new shiny thing you're trying to implement that has great long lasting impact for years to come. That's really why you want to do that because it's important, right? We're not just trying to introduce and apply a framework for the sake of applying a framework. There is very real and tangible results and that come with it where firms don't have a generally a very well documented, let's just say, or clearly articulated process. But I think they are doing something along those lines, right? There, there is some work being done. What's the difference in measurement? And that sort of goes back to that crazy high success rate. What do you think is a missing piece in why some individuals think that they're getting a 90% hit rate on innovation wins and the management team or others at the same business think that they're only getting a 10% or lower rate. What's the missing piece there? It's, I think, tracking innovation process from projects from start to finish. And starting an innovation project is really easy. Anyone can start an innovation project. Finishing it <laughs> in whatever form, at A, because you quickly figure out it's not worth it, or because you have uh, developed a successful new outcome, that's really difficult. So what management, I think, often sees, like at the beginning of the year in the budgeting season, say like an IT, and we even have a quote in the report, someone said, I think the numbers were like, they started 44 projects, so they got approval for 44 projects. And at the end of the year, when they were reviewed, management sees them again and see 12 projects got implemented. I was asking uh, specifically about success rates. And said, yeah, yeah, 10 projects never came off the ground, but it still leaves about 18 projects that no one knows what happened. <laughs> and I have been in the shoes of innovation managers. It, it's, it drove to me to do my PhD in innovation management, but also when I was uh, in a function where I was guiding innovation projects. What for me was very frustrating to see is when you guide teams one after the other, you see where they strand. So you see in this process that sometimes there are organizational bottlenecks. I saw all my teams struggle with that. And as a result, my fellows left. One was getting married, one went back to all kinds of reasons. So uh, for management, if they looked at these, this program, they said the people leave because of personal reasons, because we didn't track it. But if I, I knew, because I had been tracking them, that they all came to a certain point and then just it took too much energy and too much time. Uh, and they just felt that they were wasting it and there was greener grass elsewhere. They were like, I'm, I'm not going to, push against this organization, I'll take my stuff with me and move on. And I think if you don't have a structured process, that's what you're missing. So you don't see 
where in the organization things fall apart. You don't see in that value chain that we discussed earlier, like where are you weak? And so then you can start improving. So that's why it's so important to track these projects, but that means that you need metrics. You at least need to, to follow teams. And again, that's something that's in law firms, people work very autonomously. You have recording per hour <laughs> and clients typically are the benchmark if, for success. But then you have internal projects. When you get the funding, who follows those projects? Usually there's not a real good mechanism for it. So as an innovation manager, and especially because they, they typically don't have the budget or oversee the budget, how do you keep track of your projects if you don't have some kind of metrics uh, for it. So that's just a, a common problem that we have seen, which is what we've tried to, to solve. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, think, and I think that bleeds into the culture point a little bit as well, because part of it is around how do you set up this culture at the firm that actually encourages people to take part in these projects, but also opens the innovation work to be a bit more collaborative and not just internally because if i'm a partner who's championing that project it's in my vested interest to get my team involved in most instances because i want it to be successful because i'm the champion but how do you actually get that across the firm but also how do you make sure that it's set up in a way where you're including your clients you're including other third parties so if there are vendors there's consultants and so on and that's a really difficult challenge to, to solve. As I said, you and I can't solve the culture challenge for the firm, but I think it's important to, to at least recognize whether that's something that's a challenge for your firm, or maybe you are one of those firms. And actually, I was speaking to a firm yesterday, a large international firm, and they second their associates to spend 30% of the time for six months on innovation type projects which is really good. And that sends a certain message to the business. Of course, it's not going to be for everyone, but at least it signals to the business that it's okay if someone's spending 30% of the time on this kind of work. And I wanted to share that as something, A, because it was fresh and on the top of my mind, and B, as an example of the kinds of things that are required from a culture point of view to just making things a bit more open. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic example where there is a drive from management to say, hey, this is important. I also love the idea that um, innovation is a, is a fantastic opportunity to develop your younger talent. So mm. integrating that with saying to your associates, take this opportunity, develop not what was been done, 10, where the firm got this success like 10, 20 years ago, but think about like, how can the firm be successful the coming 10, 20 years? So um, combining that, I think, is a, is a fantastic example. But again, just giving them the opportunity, I don't think is enough because they're trained as lawyers. Innovation is not that difficult. It's much easier to teach a lawyer how to innovate than it is to teach an innovator how to do law. <laughs> but just saying someone like you get 30% of your time and just do with it. I, it's also that makes it really daunting uh, because like, where do you start? Uh, what all do you need to do? And, and the other thing is there are so many common mistakes. It's like your uh, high school teachers telling you to write an essay without giving any instruction. There are certain good ways of doing it and certain worse way of doing it. And, and even worse, even if you would be a good writer and you have written many essays, you still really benefit from an editor because what you think make a lot of sense may not make a lot of sense. So that's exactly the same what we see in innovation projects. There are a lot of do's and don'ts. If you've never done it before, you make beginner mistakes, which may lead your project to fail unnecessarily. But even if you've done it multiple times, you often start uh, reasoning from the solution. 
not from your client's perspective. So it's really helpful to have someone look over your shoulders and just like mirror and, and, and point you at things. Another example is, for instance, we know that testing your assumptions is really important. But explicating the assumptions you're making is really difficult. For an outsider, it's really easy. For me, if I hear teams talk, and so if, if I train a team, I hear all the assumptions they're making. But for them, they're truth. So it's, it's are those small things where you can really, I think, help someone. So just giving people the opportunity, that's a very important first step. It's absolutely awesome. It's the first step in the culture. But I would urge like also build some structure around that and have that process so that it's not only starting, but in the end, you want all these, these initiatives to be successful. That's such an important point because, and, and you said it so well that, what may sound like an assumption to an outsider just becomes a truism for those that are, because it's not that you're involved in it just recently. In most instances, this has been your work for X amount of time. You're living this day in, day out. You're so close to it. You develop some natural blind spots to it. And it's important for someone else to come and test that. One of the other things I wanted to discuss is who should be involved. And we, we looked at it from the lens of talent management, which is so mm-hmm. important, right? Having the associates or perhaps a younger meaning, less experienced, let's just say in this instance, members of the team, so they can actually develop further. They can learn a number of different cross-sectional skills. What's your impression of having partners and others involved in innovation? And I'll preface this with something I hear from literally every firm I've ever spoken to in my life has been, we don't want to look at this right now because we are so busy we don't have time to look at project X because we just simply don't have the time. We have client work that needs to be delivered. How do you fit that into, because it's not an excuse in most instances, it is the reality of the situation. People have to prioritize something. Where does the innovation projects fit into the priority matrix? Yeah, no, there's so much to say here, (laughs) but I barely know where to start. Let me start with, and I think in the report, it was one of our respondents had a beautiful quote, like the people that are busiest, they need it the most. Because typically in a practice that has a lot of work, there is so much opportunity probably to, to automate and scale. And usually these are practices that make money. So there's also funding to invest and see if you can do even more. I would say those are typically the areas where there is most opportunity to optimize and and create even more work, do more with less effort. So I think that's very fertile ground. I've written for the PDMA, which is the Product Development Management Association, a a chapter in their book on uh, constraints in the innovation process. And the constraints I addressed is when time commitment is the largest constraint. So I know all about people that are super busy (laughs) and have to innovate on top of their regular job. At the same time, that's a lot of the research I did also as a PhD student. In the professional services, the state of the art knowledge is with those that are practicing it day to day. It's not in the R&D department. We've even had like uh, firms that have dismantled their R&D department because it just didn't work. That means that these very busy professionals that have a very successful career, they're the ones that also need to drive innovation projects. Well, where do they find the time? And that's, I think, where the combination with talent development is so important, because typically they do feel very obliged to train in, uh, the next generation of talent. So if in this uh, next generation, so these associates or junior partners or, or whoever is like there to take over, they can run with these innovation projects. And innovation, it's work. 
people try to wish it away and try to say, oh, it's idea generation you can do in the shower. But developing and implementing an idea just takes quite a lot of time. Then you can get expertise and everything. But in the end, it is that if you take in this case, this very busy, well, very well-run um, practice that was already overloaded with work, it's to innovate their processes. So anyone from the outside cannot say, thou shall do this differently. That's just not how it works. It needs from the inside. That's where the drive needs to come from. And that's also the knowledge that's there, like what their clients need, what goes well, where there's room for optimization. So you need to have, to have the input. But as I said, that's where you need a team works. Not everyone needs to work the same amount. That's I think there are so many misconceptions about what a team is, especially an innovation team. An innovation team is a very dynamic whole. So you can start with one person. They can start doing the groundwork of doing competitor analysis, interviewing clients, looking what's out there, making the value proposition, making the business case. And then once there's value there, you can start adding on IT people if needed. So you can slowly build a team. And then it's not the case that the person that started it needs to finish it because there are some people that are really good at the early stages that love to investigate and others are love to build. <clears throat> so innovation teams should be dynamic. There should be pe people going in and out. So that's, again, like I can provide you with a resource. Um, there's plenty written about that. Ancona wrote about X teams. Innovation teams have to be dynamic. And that's also one of the other things. It has to be a team. You can start as an individual, but you can't finish as an individual. There's just too much to it. And I think we can talk about each of those for, for quite, quite some time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And maybe we'll have a follow-up conversation on some of those points. But um, I, I did want to mention on some of these things, and you called this out in the report, it's important to, if you are positioning yourself or some form in the business as an innovation team or an innovation unit or whatever, it must innovate. It cannot just be innovation in name only is I think what you classified it as in the report. It's not just about doing the lip service. It's not just saying, hey, we are innovative because people will see through that pretty quickly. And it's okay if you don't succeed all the time. That's absolutely acceptable, but you must try and do something. Uh, and one of the other things that you talked about, as much as you are being dynamic, you must also, at least as in my opinion, please agree or disagree as you will. I think you must also be dynamic with your budget. I, with law firms, often there is an annual budget and you're trying to look ahead into the next 12 months to say, what will we work on? In theory, that's okay if you have a very good understanding of everything that you're working on today. If you already have a compiled list of all the initiatives, as we talked about earlier, that doesn't seem to be the case, right? So you have to be able to have some sort of flexibility built in that once a quarter, once every six months, some non-annual period, we will have flexibility if something comes up where there is an actual need where we can measure optimize and deliver something we will allocate some funding to it i'm not saying you give it 100 of your budget but you must be able to prepare to take advantage of things as they come up you can't simply wait until the next potential instance which may be 11 months down the line if you've just started your new financial year i don't know if that comes up 
frequently Absolutely. as a potential obstacle? No, I can tell you like for the research, what we looked for is like, what were the processes being used? How are budget allocated? And that's also the, like the maturity model that we discussed in the second right. part of the report were built on those. And then we saw correlations with the experience. But to come back at the budget, that was like an, a really interesting find that many firms don't budget at all for innovation projects. So there's just no budget. Any project that needs to fight for its own resources, we've called that the ad hoc. There's advantages and disadvantages, but it typically means that the more senior people can get their projects financed, so to speak, they are able because they, yeah, they can advocate, they are in the right committees. They have the ear of senior management so they can get the budgets. But for a senior associate, it's nearly impossible. So just be aware at that level. It, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. If you just do one or two projects a year, it probably is the best way to go about it. Just make sure that if you look back, that you give everyone an equal or fair chance. Then at the next level, we see that, that firms start to organize it a bit, a, a bit better. They have a centralized process. And... Typically, they still don't have an innovation budget, but what happens, they have a knowledge management or then they have an IT budget. But these budgets are, as you mentioned, they're set at a yearly basis. At ILTA on, we did a session on innovating at a shoestring budget. And when I first heard that, it was interesting because it seemed like a batch of honor. And I've got to say, it's amazing what you can do on a shoestring budget. That should not be the badge of honor or be promoted as like the way to innovate because an innovation project is worth it or not. Yeah. That's why these early stages and creating a business case is so important. That was one of the things that uh, I learned from our research as well, like this annual budget cycle. So what happens at the beginning of the year, um, just as a one case, like they budget for 44 innovation projects, they never get started. And then you and, and the others have budgets and they never get followed up whether perhaps they run into issues or it was not as realistic as hoped or whatever but they have the budget and so they basically can keep running which is insane and they have other projects like we had a pandemic in 2020 that hit depending on where your cycle was but for some it hit after the budget was set and so then you can change and one of the best practices i discussed in the report is and this doesn't cost a firm any money but it's just a different mindset of investing in innovation projects. Invest per milestone. Invest in what we call like an affordable loss principle. I'm happy to give a reference for that as well. And so you set a budget for innovation, what you're willing to spend. Say, yeah, a certain percent of your revenue or a certain percent of time. You can create budget for that. And then keep the flexibility on like a quarter or a quarterly or even bi-monthly basis to allocate those funds uh, and on a milestone-based budget. So teams need to prove, even if you have gotten funding at the start, uh, that doesn't mean that you will get funding all the way to the end. Because it can be that midway, for instance, a vendor comes up with a better solution while you were developing something in-house. You need them to have the flexibility to say, hey, awesome what you did. But we are now competing suddenly with this vendor that came out with this announcement. They seem to be further along. It doesn't make sense to keep funding this project. So those are like the dynamics if you, that you need in your budgeting and evaluation cycles. We call that portfolio management. Yeah. And that's just something that we did not see. That's what we know of, like from the innovation management literature. That's like that next level. Yeah. <laughs> Once you have managed your, your projects, you start optimizing. You start looking at your portfolio as a whole. Like how well is it linked with the strategy? Where can I optimize? We didn't see that in, in the firms, in our sample, at least. And it's, as you're saying that, I was having certain internal reactions to what you were saying around, oh, we'll stop our internal project and fund this other project that was just announced. 
So anyone listening, when you have those reactions, please do share them with me and with us. Because honestly, those are important things to work through. Because especially if a lot of work and effort has gone into a project, if there is internal will and whatever else, camaraderie for a project, it's difficult to disengage. It is very difficult to disengage, right? If you feel like you own that project, it is a difficult thing to acknowledge that there's something else out there, which is a better option, but that's a decision that you need to make from time to time. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I was having that reaction and I'm sure others will. So although we are saying all of these things, we are looking at this in a very objective way. The reality is never going to be that clear cut. I would love to hear thoughts and opinions on that for sure. Um, yeah, no, so, that's where you have that need to have that healthy balance and like of very passionate people that are driving it. And then the rational people, that's, I think, the role of an innovation manager to facilitate it mm-hmm. and offer that crying shoulder. <laughs> yeah, they need to make a team aware that they perhaps are fighting for something that's just their time and effort is better spent elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was a great conversation. We just scratch the tip of the iceberg. I will encourage people to go and look at the report, which is, uh, if you're seeing this on LinkedIn, it's posted in the comments. If you see listening to this, it's in the show notes at fringeagle.com. But read the report, it's 23 pages of goodness. And some of the things we didn't talk about today, which we alluded to, is the maturity model that's in the report. Definitely worth looking into that. And one of my favorite topics, which is around portfolio slash innovation pipeline management. Uh, I love talking about that stuff, but we didn't get into it today. Flora, I wanted to thank you for coming on. If you, people want to find out more, if they want to learn more, other than just reading the report, where can they get in touch with you? We have our website, www.organizing4innovation, that's with a numeric four.com. I, that's the only advantage of having a really strange name, Floor Blindenbach. I'm the only one on the planet. <laughs> so if you find me on LinkedIn, uh, we frequently write blogs. So find me on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to send me a direct message if you have questions about our report or a podcast. There's so much opportunity out there. As you started my introduction, my goal is to really help innovators deliver successful outcomes. Perfect. Yeah. And this is probably the second, third conversation I've had with Flora. And yeah, it's absolutely worth speaking to her because she has a whole wealth of experience and from different, different verticals as well. So she can certainly share some, some best practices and some things that you probably want to avoid. But thank you again, Flora. Wonderful having you on. Show notes are at fringedeagle.com. Find out uh, resources to Flora's website and to her LinkedIn and other socials. And you can connect with her then. Thank you so much and see you next time. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It could include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. Emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter, and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me. I'm Jack Sarasworth. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Sarasworth is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.